So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. Oh, hey, Taylor. How's it going? It's going well. We've had a busy week covering VIF, covering NIF. Um, some major trailers just dropped that you informed me of in The Sound of Metal and Minari. It's a busy week. It feels like the holiday season's here, and we're just in the first week of October, and I thought we ended August about three days ago. How about you? Yeah, especially with uh, stuff in the news this week, it's been a long week. It uh, feels like uh, lots changed already since we last spoke. It sure has. Uh, the smoke <laughs> is back as well. <laughs> yep. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting um, time, and it feels like it's been a short time, even though it feels like it's been a laboriously long time. Um, Absolutely. But... We got some first impressions that I'm pretty stoked about. And then we're talking about some movies that, um, you know, might end up winning some Oscars this year. So it's, it's not a bad weekend. Not bad at all. Good stuff to talk through. Uh, let's hop over and discuss the sound of metal first. Let's do it. Your hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play tomorrow. Let's see what it's like, okay? I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play to me. You have to understand your first responsibility is to preserve the hearing you have. I can't hear you. Do you understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. All right, Michael. Riz Ahmed has come a long way from lying on the pavement and Nightcrawler. What do you think? That's right. I. That's funny. I always go to the night of when I think of Riz Ahmed. Um, I totally forgot he was in Nightcrawler, to be honest. Uh, excited to see him in a lead role here. I think he uh, looks like he's doing good work. Uh, it looks like an anxiety-inducing film, especially in the first half, probably, watching this guy's world kind of fall apart. Um, you know, as with any movie where you see someone um, having to sort of uh, re-discover their identity after they've lose what allows them to do what it is they do um i think it looks good reason i met olivia cook two uh interesting kind of younger up-and-comers uh, i think it looks good what about you yeah i agree i'm excited um by the look and in, in the tone of the film as well um that's kind of exactly the type of stuff that i like to see from first time writer directors um, I understand this was a debut that originally uh, made the circles last year and was acquired and is just now being released. So I, I think it's great that, um, that, you know, that up and coming artist is, you know, collaborating with some of our, our younger um, stars and Olivia Cook and Riz Ahmed. Um, Riz Ahmed also has Mogul Mowgli um, currently making the festival circuit. So um, he's definitely doubling down on lead roles that have to do with sound and, and musicianship. Um, I'm intrigued and I understand it's going to be available here in the next month or so. Is that right? Said right something about the corner, that's correct. Um, I think it looks like it is going to have some kind of brief theatrical run wherever that's feasible. And then uh, we'll be streaming. Probably outside the U.S. <laughs> mm. um, all right. On to A24's Minari starving, starring Stephen Yoon. All right. Pretty boy, pretty boy. I'm not pretty, I'm good looking. Steven, look, they're wheels. Wheels? Look at that, Tony. Jibiji. Is 
새로 시작한다고 그랬잖아. 이게 그거야. 아빠는 빈 가든 하나 만들 거야. What a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. If you're here with us for the first time, please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right. Yes. 미국 애들은 할머니랑 같이 방 쓰는 거 싫어한다던데. I don't like grandma. 걔는 안 그래요. 한국애니까. Grandma smells like Korea. 야. 뭐라고? 그랜마 스멜? All right, Michael. That was the trailer for Lee Isaac Chung's Minari. What do you think? Well, I gave my first impression on our first trailer, so I'll let you do the honors. What do you think? I think this looks beautiful. Um, Visually, it looks beautiful. The story that it's showing in the trailer also is quite touching already. I feel like I kind of know the the family that is Centerpiece of Minari. A little disappointed that the trailer shows what appears to be a major uh, climactic event in a fire occurring um, on the property in a pretty established building in that trailer. But I, I really like the, the visual flourishes that I saw, how sunlight is um, just naturally kind of encapsulated within all the footage here and the the earthliness and the uh, the hope that that the film centers on how about you yeah i can tell already that that little boy will probably steal some hearts when this uh eventually comes out i would agree it looks like a very good looking movie quite handsomely shot um you know just going off the trailer alone it's easy to i think uh fear that it'll veer more towards sentimentality than complexity, but I think that's probably just the nature of a trailer for family dramas like this, is that you put the sentimental beats front and center, because that's what pulls the heartstrings. Um, So just knowing the acclaim it has, I trust that, um, you know, that complexity will be there, and fingers crossed it is. Um, But yeah, I uh, am, am similarly excited. Yeah, it it is kind of interesting for me to see what is maybe an A24 crowd pleaser, potentially. Oh, 100%. I don't think we've seen too many of that, too many entries from A24 that are true crowd pleasing films. Well, yeah, I mean, I would think about something like The Farewell, which is like, you know, sometimes deemed like an A24 quote unquote art house movie. But like, if you ask me, like, it's pretty broadly appealing. It's, it's mainstream in, in a lot of ways. It's just a, a more kind of stylistically bold kind of uh, broadly appealing film. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think it looks good. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as members, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. On to the uh, Vancouver International Film Festival, the New York Film Festival titles Undine, Nomadland, Time, and The Human Voice. Let's start with Undine, or as you like to pronounce it in the German imagining here, Undina. Das ganze Wochenende. Christoph wartet auf Undine. Undine? Ist mir runtergefallen. Das Bein ist abgebrochen, aber ich habe es wieder geklebt.
hast gesagt, dass du mich liebst. Für immer. Das hat mich glücklich gemacht. So glücklich, wie ich noch nie glücklich war. Du kannst nicht gehen. That's right. I definitely had been saying Undine prior to watching the movie, and then I felt like I was hearing Undina. Is that what you heard as well? Um, well, yes. In the film, it's a German film. She's called Undina correctly in um, their parlance. But I believe that this is an Irish folktale. Um, mm. And so I've just always called it by the, the previous film that I'd seen with uh, Colin Farrell called on Dean and the so at some point in the 2000s. Got it. Understood. Um, it's written and directed by Christian Petzold, starring Paula Beer and Franz Rogowski, who was, who were both in Petzold's last film, Transit, from just uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Um, should I kick it off with just the brief IMDb plot synopsis and we'll go from there? Yeah, how many sentences do we have? Does it just say, oh, Water Nymph is a murderer? The end? (laughs) (laughs) That works too. This has a couple, more than usual for IMDb. It says, Undina, played by Paula Beer, works as a historian lecturing on Berlin's urban development. We already lost some people. But when the man she loves leaves her, the ancient myth catches up with her. Undina has to kill the man who betrays her and return to the water. This is true. This is true. Um, It's an interesting film in that it starts with the most obscure idea possible, which is her having um, breakfast with the man who is scorning her, in which she promises to murder him Mm. if he is not at the table and breaking up with the girl um, that he's currently with when she gets back. Um, mm-hmm. it is, it's in a lot of ways, a total pivot from transit, but mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine ever being able to predict what Petzold's going to do, no matter mm-hmm. how much I know about the like thesis of the idea of his film, he's always going to spin it on its head. I think that the diver and the leg, um, uh, of the the figurine and how that ties into the story is is just incredibly mastercrafted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it does feel like a pivot from Transit. I would agree with that. There's something with Petzold where I feel like with his movies, I'm always kind of on two planes at once. And in Transit, those two planes were more, you know, you know were more uh, uh, were more related to time. That was kind of a collapsing of past and present. Where this kind of feels like, you know, it's kind of a collapsing of reality and fantasy. So mm-hmm. he's kind of just working in a different kind of uh, collapsing of different dimensions here. Um, and I, yeah, I, I continue to think he's kind of working in a, in a mode that's pretty singular and pretty unique um, in, in cinema today. Uh, I really like this film. Um, I don't know that I can really articulately describe what the thesis of this movie is, just because of some of the detail. Um, we get these long monologues where Paula Beers and Dina, as a historian, is walking us through the history of Berlin's urban development. Long monologues. Um, and they're, you know, so kind of ordinary and banal. Mm-hmm. And this is enmeshed with a story that is at large a fairy tale with... Uh, that's obviously grounded in myth. I think it's just a really kind of um, beguiling mixture of, of realism and fantasy that's, that's really unique to me. I, I agree. I, I think that at bottom, the way I view this film is it's about falling in love with something that can never quote unquote belong to you. Whether mm-hmm. that is the, um, the cities that are, you know, shown or the the quadrants of the city that are shown through Undina's um, presentations uh, of Berlin and all the different facades that that have fallen and come back and been restored and that they're not really true, um, but they represent something like that. And then seeing 
Franz Rogowski fall in love with her after she already, after that's already, you know, not possible. You know, she can, she can be distracted, but the myth has to come to fruition. And um, a second love doesn't, um, you're not allowed to have a second love if you are indeed a a water nymph, Um, you know, which is, you know, we're not quite talking about facts, but that is the way that the tale goes. So you always know that it's kind of doomed from the start, but you can't help but smirk and um, fall in love with them as they fall in love together in front of that broken aquarium in the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. And I like transic. I I think it's, romantic in just a really kind of distinct way um it feels like really kind of um like this kind of classical romanticism in a way but it's such a kind of a high concept project overall um that's just something there's something about that that's really interesting to me um did it lose you during these lectures on the history of urban development in in Berlin? Did these strike you as interesting? Um, Did it lose me? I I mean, yeah, it was hard for me to keep up, but I was not disinterested. I I was, I was quite fascinated by the, the floridity of the, the words and, and how, um, distinctive and eloquent she was at explaining these ideas about, um, how people view their dwellings and how people view their surroundings. Um, so that wasn't hard for me. It was just hard for me to keep up as I was trying to, to understand exactly what she was saying. Because I'm not mm-hmm. familiar with the study of, you know, the architecture of Berlin over that swath of time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, a funny movie to describe, just like that plot synopsis says, because you describe your first two characters as a lecturer on history. The other guy is an industrial diver who works primarily on dams. Oh, but by the way, she is a water nymph. So mm-hmm. hopefully that pulls you back in. Um, well, they re- he really, you know, sets you up for this by showing you the giant catfish. Totally. I love that's, that. That's that's the Tim Burton big fish move. You just you let everybody know that you're playing in a realm that isn't quite real right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, it's the first of kind of a new un- informal trilogy that he's going to do, all kind of grounded in myths or fairy tales. Um, oh, I was not aware of that. What are, what are his follow up fairy tales? I don't know what specific fairy tale he's referencing, but it sounds like they might have sort of, uh, they might each have kind of an elemental focus. The next mm-hmm. one's about fire and about people uh, touched by a forest fire in some way. Um, Interesting. Okay. And do we know if Rogowski is returning? That I don't know. All right. We'll, yeah. we'll keep our fingers crossed that we get the same cast and, and crew as, as this one. Um, yeah. I, I do think that it it is not as good as Transit, just to put it simply. But I find it really, really charming. Um, I don't think that it looks as good as Transit looked. I don't think that it plays as well as Transit plays. I think that the dialogue does get in its own way sometimes. And the kind of enchantedness of the nature of telling a fairy tale in this way um does undermine like the the stakes at certain points but it it still has big hits um whether it's in the hospital or um finding out that someone wasn't actually on the phone when you thought you were talking to them in a pivotal moment um and what what actually was happening or just the way that he shows the figure as a stand-in for rogowski um the human um, character. It, it, I don't know. I'm going to be probably carrying this film with me for a lot longer than um, it would seem based on my rating, probably. I felt this movie more than I, I think that it's formally dazzling. Totally with you. I think I much prefer Transit to this one, but I'm still pretty positive on it. Uh, it's just interesting how it feels like a new direction for him, quite like explicitly so he tells us this is a new direction for him uh but it also just refers back to his own filmographies in a way like it obviously 
recalls transit just because he's working with the same actors. Um, there was the 2007 or 2008 film called Yella that he did that I really liked that um, I thought a lot about during this film because that one is about a woman who's in a abusive relationship. She's trying to split up with this guy. And right at the start of the film, she's in the car with him. He freaks out and drives over a bridge intentionally and into a river. Um, and she crawls out of the river and the rest of her film, rest of the film is her experience as a, an accountant uh, in these kind of like high stakes um, meetings with a businessman she develops a relationship with. And um, she is sort of haunted by this car accident that she was in. Um, but there's this uh, kind of water motif throughout it because she is um, potentially in a kind of limbo state. And this is kind of an homage to the film Carnival of Souls. Um, so something just about this, this interest in water, this aquatic motif um, uh, kept coming to my mind during Undine. So yeah, just a really interesting filmography. Pencil. Yeah, that's, I'm flooded. I don't remember the name of this film, um, but it, it was a, a, a Denis Villeneuve film from about the same period. And it just, that sounds just like it, where a woman mm. drives a car into uh, a river or a canal of some sort and then gets out and she was in a domestic abuse relationship. And I think she might've committed an act of murder. And then you're just following her day to day. Um, yeah, I'll have to look that up. That's so interesting. I, I do think that there might be an internal um, film language that is being referenced by Undine from other filmmakers that maybe mm -hmm. I didn't pick up on on the first viewing. And it'd be interesting to go revisit the film that you're mentioning and some mm -hmm. other films that tackle Undine as, as well as um, kind of the parable of the woman who kind of can't ever get what she wants because we're introduced to her in circumstances where everything's already gone away and we're just watching it slowly disintegrate. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think he's a professed lover of American cinema. One thing I read was that when he was trying to figure out what he wanted the underwater sequences in Undine to look like, uh, he was looking at night of the hunter for inspiration. Um, oh, interesting. Some of those shots. Um, yeah. Cool reference points. The, yeah. It was very, very, um, stagey underwater. I, mm -hmm. I definitely don't know if I liked the look of it, but I can remember it. Um, so that tells me it's distinctive for sure. For sure. For sure. Um, favorite scene? Oh, man. I kind of like the uh, meet cute, I guess you could call it, when uh, Franz Rogowski and Paula Beer first meet. And uh, she seems to hear the miniature diver in the tank calling her name um you know just uh, a memorable way to kind of kick off this fleeting romance they have with this um accident in the cafe that will stick with me what about you um i i love that moment too um this is tough i'll just pick one of them i will pick the moment after the wine is spilt the famous moment mm. and he wrestles her into agreeing to share with him her presentation that she's been preparing mm. and she leads him out onto the balcony and mm. we get that nighttime-esque transit shot that, that we remember um, from his previous film and it's just beautiful to look at two people that are so convincingly a couple in that moment look out over the the large, beautiful city at night as it's lit up in dark and be, you know, just in, in love in that moment. It was very, very well um, shown in the film. Also a great scene. Um, let's get on to Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, starring Frances McDormand. Walk. 
All right, Michael, you are the resident impresario over liking the film The Writer. I think you will also need to be the resident impresario over liking the film Nomadland, unfortunately. Oh, no. You know, I was just about to say that usually going into the podcast, I have a little bit of a sense of which way you're leaning on something. I had no hints or signals coming into this one, whether you're positive, negative, mixed. Negative, huh? Or mixed? Um, mixed. I do not think it's mm. a bad movie. I just don't like it. Mm. Got it. Got it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I dug this movie for the most part. Um, it's an adaptation of a novel by the name, by the same name, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, not one that I have read. Um, like you said, it stars Francis McDormand as this, uh, widow who loses her job after, at, at like a sheetrock plant after, the uh, company goes under the whole town goes under mm-hmm. um and the town she, of empire the town of empire and she takes to the road and she lives out of her van she kind of travels between different short-term gigs and kind of lives among other nomads and also by herself out of her van this is sort of just about her uh life on the road her lonely travels um yeah i i, I like the the writer this is similar in that uh it's a lot of non-professionals um filling out a, a good number of the roles who i thought were really talented um just a gorgeous movie i think she clue Zhao has a really great eye for these landscapes that um uh yeah are are, are just gorgeous i think it's a really kind of plaintive pretty quiet movie um that's a little bit more about uh this woman's just movement through space and her kind of emotional state not a great deal of plot um what what did not work for you here um i mean most of the stuff you're talking about i just don't feel the same way about i don't think that anything is really bad um I I might personally rephrase how I took the story as rather than watching her kind of be isolated. um, What I think I witnessed in the film was her um, growth from, you know, being a wife, having a home and a town and a job and becoming something different and finding a new community and then choosing individuality and living alone over community whether that be traveling with the friends that she she's making um, from that Nomadland club or actually setting, settling down with the only other actor in the film um, who invites her to, to live with him. Um, I just don't find much of it convincing or really that beautiful. Um, this is just not a story that I ever found myself really swooning with or, or um, feeling personally drawn to. Um, I think it might just be a sensibility thing with me and Zhao because th- there's at no point where I ever think her movies are bad or she shouldn't be making movies or any of that stuff. It's just, I never feel that personal thing where a movie feels like it was for me at any level. Um, and this is just a film where I didn't find myself um, grabbing grabbing on or grappling with any of the content. It was just kind of, um, it's not what I'm looking for when I, when I watch an adaptation of a book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. To pick up on the the first point you made, um, you're totally right. The film emphasizes that this is a choice she makes to live on the road, to uh, be independent. She clearly values her independence and her self-sufficiency. Um, and I her think dad's I, place. Yeah, yeah. To me, I guess I read so much of um, what we see her looking like in these lonely scenes is that she that she chooses this life knowing that loneliness is a part of that. Like I don't, I don't think she is. I cannot help but look at her and not see some loneliness in the, in this woman, even though she, she is actively choosing this lifestyle. She just knows that that mm-hmm. is a part of it. Um, and that she is kind of compartmentally compart, compartmentalizing the part of her life that was about togetherness with her husband. And this is a way of, yeah, uh, starting new. Um, so I, I think, I think we're on the same page there. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think the craft is, is really strong. Um, 
especially with how the the camera is so often on the move um, with, you know, so many tracking shots as she's walking around wherever she is, whether it's a warehouse or these kind of big wide open highway side campgrounds that just really captures that sense of drift and meandering and wandering and roaming that defines her life. I think there's a good kind of um, uh, harmony of form and content there. Um, and yeah, I'm surprised. That, I am surprised to hear the word unconvincing. I mean, I thought so many of the supporting players here were just were just so real and human. I feel like you just see so much lived experience in these people's faces. Um, anybody in particular, or was it was it something more broad that just didn't you just didn't buy? I think that probably having Frances McDormand be an actress that I've spent over fifty hours with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then have to suspend my disbelief to view her as if she is not who she is surrounded by real people is just not something that I was ever going to be able to really do. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's easier to do that stuff when you like a project. The fact that I never liked the project and don't really care about much of anything that occurs um, just kind of cements the fact that I was watching someone who I know from film since I was little playing this, this role. And I don't have any problem with it. It's just, I never felt like it was doing any of the stuff that it was um, purported to, to do, you know, and sometimes this happens when you just hear so much positive press. This movie is actually suffering from the amount of positivity that is being published about it currently um it's being suffocated from all the all the positive stuff and i'm i i don't think that anybody could look at it and call it bad i think the handheld cinematography by Zhao is is really interesting i think that the the minor um moment where she shows the avengers um being mm-hmm. the film showing at the theater in the middle of America was a funny aside, knowing that she is making the new Avengers-esque film for Marvel right now. But all that stuff, I mean, all this film together, to me, I, I see it as a film of parts rather than a, a film that comes together. Um, and that's, you know, I think it's just sensibility-wise. And I think that a lot of people will like it, just like the writer. Just the fact that I'm not on board shouldn't deter anyone from watching. It's just not my thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. You know, I would not consider Frances McDormand one of my favorite actresses. I do think this is a performance that I like quite a bit from her. I actually did not respond super well to the male character who she may or may not have a little bit of a romantic interest in. David Strathairn, I think is Mm -hmm. his name. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right. I don't know his name but i know exactly who you're talking about the only other actor yeah which he does feel a little more actorly to me i don't know that he has the same kind of soulfulness that i think a lot of the non-professionals do um there was just a little bit of of depth missing there i don't i don't know that that dynamic or that chemistry really worked for me i would i would maybe borrow your word and say that was a little unconvincing perhaps for me um i would have rather that maybe have been a another uh, unprofessional. I mean, there's something about having all these unprofessionals and then making this maybe possible romantic interest be between the two stars. I don't know that I love that. Um, so yeah, that was that was maybe one issue for me. Um, Do yeah. you think it deserves all of the vast acclaim it's getting as you know potential Oscar? Winner for Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Adapted Screenplay. What do you think? Maybe Best Director? I think it makes a lot of sense, given the kind of movie it is. I think it is a pretty accessible movie. I, um, yeah, I, I don't know that I would go out of my way to say it's, it's undeserved, as I think you're maybe suggesting. <laughs> well, I... Um, I think it deserves consideration. I don't think it deserves the same, um, you know, I, I've essentially been reading for the last three weeks how it's a shoe in for all these awards. 
not nominations, but to win them. And I just, what I watched does not convince me that it deserves to win. It convinces me that it deserves to be, um, you know, considered and, and voted upon, but I just, I, I don't see something that is totally unlike anything I've seen all year that deserves all this attention. I just don't see that here at all. I mean, to be honest, I feel like that's the case with the Oscars most years where it's a matter of the films with the right resources, with, exactly. the, with the studios just having the right playbooks. So yeah, like to be honest, like if this, this is actually exactly the kind of film that I would like to see, you know, make its way to the Oscars versus so like just the more uh, boring prestige stuff that I think has no feeling to it. I think this is, I think this does have a lot of feeling and is a really distinct kind of look at the American heartland that, you know, is just filling in the gaps with other directors um, who are interested in America and inter- in, in are specifically American filmmakers. Um, yeah. I mean, whether it'll be my favorite movie of the year, I don't know, but I'm actually pretty pleased that if this is the one that's, headed to the Oscars. I'm okay with that. On that, we can disagree. So y- you said you don't know if it's going to be your favorite film of the year. Does that mean it is currently your favorite film of the year? No, no, no. That was not what I meant to oh, okay. Okay. suggest. Um, w- where does this place on the year for you? It's up there for sure. I mean, top 15, 20, it's, it's in there okay. for sure. Yeah. Um, well, then we're not too far apart. This is probably in my top 70, so. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I guess we'll do a favorite scene. I'm sure you'll have something um, a little bit more specific than I do. Um, well, maybe I'm biased to uh, have to pick something like an Amazon warehouse as a, <laughs> as a site within this movie. Um, I don't know that that's really my favorite scene, but I'll just, I'll just go with that for the sake of having an example of the kind of lifestyle that is so common for thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans today. And mm-hmm. I've never seen it. I've never seen it on screen before. Um, I haven't either. Yeah. And um, that it really doesn't try to over explain it. It's just about the texture and the rhythm of it and sort of what it looks like, what it feels like. I'm totally on board with that. It doesn't feel didactic in any way. <laughs> what about you? I will go with a very brief scene. Um, it is a pair of fingers plucking up an empty shell from the water, looking mm-hmm. at it and returning it to the water. And I just, I really liked everything about that scene, how it had been led up to and foreshadowed, you know, that moment and what that eggshell means and what's going on overhead um, previously in the film. And I thought that Zhao's handheld cinematography on that really, really close up of the water in that moment was just, you know, that's the little human thing that I hear other people talk about in her cinematography that I saw there and was just arrested by. Yeah, love it. On to Garrett Bradley's time. Judge's office. Success is the best revenge. Success is the best revenge show them that they can't treat human life this way. Success is the best revenge. Just hang in there, because when you get them home, they're going to pay, they're going to pay, they're going to pay. I knew that if it was going to be, it was going to be totally up to me. All right, Michael, we're talking about, about an 80-minute um, documentary here about a family that, um, geez, I don't even know how you would do a synopsis for this one about a family attempting to carry on without moving on. Um, what do you think about time? Yeah. Uh, well, we did Minari for first impressions. I feel like that was one of the most acclaimed titles out of Sundance this year. I think this is 
up there as well with one of the most acclaimed titles coming out of that festival. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that it necessarily reached my sky high expectations for it, but I'm very positive on the stock. I think it's really good. Um, and yeah, just to kind of build on what you said about what it's about. Um, it is, um, made up of footage shot by Garrett Bradley, as well as home videos from, uh, a woman named, um, Fox Rich, if I remember correctly. I believe so. I think their full name is Richland, but they go by just Rich. Yeah, I think that sounds right to me. Um, uh, Fox's husband is serving uh, throughout most of this documentary, serving a like 60-some year sentence for an armed... Yeah, for an armed bank robbery um, that he and she participated in when they were in need of cash to try and get a business started in their hometown. And the film's kind of about their process of living with his absence while he is in prison for the majority of this sentence and her efforts to try and get him out. Um, And uh, what the passage of time feels like for a family when one when one member of the family is in jail. yeah, um, I'm positive on it. We'll start there. What about you? I am negative, as you know. I don't think that I got to know this family and what they were going through. I also don't think I got to know what the legal um, procedures were and, and how um, those unfolded. I think that it, it tries to do both, and it does neither. And I don't really feel like it um, deserves almost any of the acclaim it's getting. I like the, the editing at some level. There, there is an interesting pacing to it, but I think that that also sacrifices all of the narrative logistics and getting to know the family or the story. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of surprised. You don't think you got a good sense of fox's personality through this like i think i do but it's not just it's not about fox it's about the family or it's about getting um her husband back so that the family's restored to me it's not just about her and the fact that it essentially just shows me things she did rather than um shows me more of the experience that the family had or, or what the uphill battles details were to get her, her husband and their father out. Um, I think it really, to me, suffers from that because all that empathy of, of that gets transferred to the viewer when you understand really the details of what's going on is absent mm. and glossed over very, very fast. Yeah, I don't know. For me, the, it wasn't necessarily about the detail of, of procedure and logistics in the efforts to get him out. It's about the experience of the passage of time when someone is not present um, and how kind of elastic time is because in those kinds of situations. Um, and it's really kind of simple in its form. It's shot in black and white. Um, and it's, it's just footage of them as they live out their lives in these home videos. But I think there is something really kind of pure about the form it's in um, with, uh, you know, stuff as simple as just like, you know, some B-roll of clouds is kind of the, the interstitial moments, which are sort of deceptively simple in a way, because is that not like the perfect image for when you look at a cloud and you're not quite sure if that cloud is moving or not? And the sense of um, uh, time passing when you're watching uh, clouds that you can be, you can hardly discern if, if time is passing or not as you watch them, you know, just really simple but powerful filmmaking. I I think um, especially with with some of the the zooms and canted angles that I think lend shots a lot of gravity. I think it's a really well crafted doc, um, and. Yeah, it's not an essay doc. I, I think um, that should be clear. It's not about stats or statistics or procedures. To me, like, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's more about the experience of, of time passing, um, which does not seem like how you perceived it. I really like 
the movie when you tell me about it. Um, I would have preferred that. <laughs> I yeah, when I when I watched it, I it, I mean, so there's factual claims in the film that we don't get to see anything about, um, which are things like Fox taking a plea deal for two years and you know, and then him not ending up with that opportunity and you don't know why you don't um, ever get told that there were three different trials and that at one point they had tried to get him into an army boot camp for six months, but because his sentence was over seven years, he wasn't allowed for that. All that stuff to make sense of this film and what actually happened to this family, you have to go out and research for yourself. And I think that if I watch a documentary I, I should have an idea of why what happened to the family happened. And I don't get that from this documentary. And it's simultaneously also about, you know, um, it, it is a cry about the injustice of the, the prison system by Fox, I think. It's, it's very clear towards the end how it just keeps going back to her doing these public speaking engagements about it. But it doesn't ever clearly... Um, demonstrate what actually has been occurring to the viewer. And I think that that's a very large oversight. Maybe that's just my sensibilities and preferences, but I, I do like to know what's actually happening rather than just be told something occurred. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I, I don't know that I just didn't need that many specifics to be honest, to, to understand that he's in jail or could be in jail for 60 years and how impossibly long that is when you conceive of that as multiple children's lifetimes. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right. You're right. He, it was an armed robbery. You wonder to yourself, like how dangerous was this thing? It raises questions. Absolutely. Um, and it was but, him and his wife. And then there was apparently a third person, which I didn't find out about until I read. Um, I didn't know that he was originally only sentenced to between 12 and 18 years or 10 and 18 years. Um, like there, there's just so much stuff that I write because he started with a smaller prison sentence than he ended up with. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. But I, I don't remember ever getting that explained to me. Yeah. Yeah. In the film. Like I, if I couldn't know what this family was going through, then when I'm seeing these children's faces and I'm seeing her, her, please and, and being upset it hits way harder and i think that that was just maybe that's once again sensibility but i think it, it just doesn't work for me because i don't actually know what's happening yeah yeah fair enough um yeah i, I don't know i don't i don't have too much more to say about it um especially because it's not particularly fresh um i don't know about you but i watched this one a little while ago so it is a little harder to yeah, i think uh, i watched it specifics. one week ago exactly um but i i mean I'll, I'll just briefly say that i don't think we got to see enough of the children i think that mm -hmm. they spent maybe too much time with fox without ever specifying um, like what Fox w was doing in these community engagements. Like we never really had that cut to a three minute conversation where she's having a conversation with one other person and it kind of unlocks your understanding of, of what she's going through in that moment, which was near the end of when they finally got him out of prison. But mm. it, the momentum of that was not there for me. Um, and I think that maybe that's why some people are responding to it because time is that, that unpredictable thing in some ways where, you know, all these days feel the same and then boom, something big happens. Um, and I, I can't write that off. It's just, I, I can tell you that my personal sensibilities and the way that the film conveys the content of this family's story, I did not respond to at all. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I guess for me, it's partly that this is, you know, a super personal story. We're not getting stats on mass incarceration or race as a factor in prison industrial complex. Like it's super, super personal, but something about not getting too bogged down in some of the details um, still gives it a little bit of just gives you a little bit more 
uh, space to move around in it, I guess. And, you know, imagine the experiences of all these other faces in the crowd when she's making these speeches about having to live without her husband for decades and decades. Um, to me, I think there's just, I guess it's kind of a nice, I kind of feel like I know just enough. Um, but that is where we differ, of course. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you feel like you got to know enough because I, I don't feel like I even know each of the kids. You know, like, um, I definitely know the one kid who, who has his debate team um, segment in there, but I, I really don't feel like I got to know all, what was it, five kids? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I, I can't, re I can't, like, remember each of their distinctive faces. I know mom, I know dad, I know the kid from the debate team, and I think I, I remember, like, one other face, but I, I don't know, I, when I watch a documentary that is supposed to be about empathy and, and the experience of a family, one of the measurements I have is like taking, you know, them with me and feeling that whole family. And I just, that's, that's a blind spot again for me um, that, you know, I'm just not the target audience for this one, I suppose. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's not terrible by any means. It's just, not my thing. I'll probably give it two, two and a half. Fair enough. All right. Um, two, the human voice. All right, Michael, we're talking about Tilda Swinton talking through her uh, Apple earbuds and um, being forced to adopt a dog. Those are AirPods, sir. AirPods, there we go. <laughs> yes. It's the latest from Pedro Almodovar, 30-minute short playing at New York Film Festival. You can look at this movie from a mile away and see that it is a Pedro Almodovar movie. It is quite luxurious and, and lush and stylized and all those good Almodovar words. Yes, absolutely. Lavish sets and bright, bold colors, ultra modern set decoration, which is all kind of just a feast for the eyes. I mean, all that just works for me. I actually think it's like one of the better looking things he's done, if you ask me. Um, I think uh, visually, this is a pretty satisfying movie for me. Just the pure, the sheer extravagance of this set is, is pretty fun. I entirely agree. I would also point out that the extravagance is not limited to the set, but in fact incorporates also into Tilda's wardrobe, which is quite formidable in those first like four minutes of the film in which we see her in a couple different outfits. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was struck by not knowing if, I, I still don't know exactly what was going on in that warehouse. <laughs> I, I really don't know if I was supposed to believe that that was a house or a hotel room or an apartment or was that a converted warehouse that they were living in? Like, what was going on, man? Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the last shot in Pain and Glory, where the camera is pulling back and we're, we see that we're mm -hmm. on a set. Mm -hmm. that, that popped to mind um, when I was watching this because, yeah, we're, we're on a set within this big warehouse. I think it only works for me on sort of like this meta metafictional level um, and that like maybe there is always something kind of artificial or constructed about this relationship, ab about domesticity. I feel like he's kind of interested in, um, you know, the lives of domestic women. And, you know, you, the evidence of that is even in the short itself with all the Douglas Cirque DVDs and that kind of thing. Um, I don't think I read that as something real within the world of the film. That is a... Um, meta device for us to see this as a sort of artificial world she is living in um 
did did it work more on like a diegetic level for you? I it worked on like three different things simultaneously for me. Like yeah. I I both viewed it as the metafictional thing, but then I also was like, well, does he own the warehouse? And then they converted it into like a living space for now where he keeps his his mistress mm-hmm. because she is not just relegated to the space of the, you know, the framed up home in the center. She is walking around in the warehouse itself and interacting mm-hmm. with it. She's bringing chairs out there and wearing different clothing articles. She is walking around it, pouring gasoline on things. That's where she lights mm-hmm. the match. That's where um, the dog comes up to her at the end. She exits out the warehouse door. Like it's not something that he is ignoring. It is part and parcel, part of the way that he's telling the story. And I just don't know what to do with it, but I'm simultaneously thrilled and confused. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I really wondered when she's buying this act at the beginning of the, of the film, mm-hmm. this is going to get violent. I don't normally think of him as a, as a director really interested in violence, although I haven't really seen his older stuff. I think some of those are even more kind of... Uh, maybe well, some of the women on the verge of a nervous breakdown was a little bit violent at the end yeah yeah that's fair that's fair the, air, the airport scene right Isn't yeah, there a gun? Yeah. i think there was a shooting <laughs> that could be um yeah i was i was almost bracing for like blood to be splattered or something within this set um, I, I think what he was trying to tell us was that he really hates suits by taking an axe to the suit on the bed. Clearly. Maybe he just <laughs> he's like, I don't like wearing suits. That that's the whole plot. Um, so there there is another piece that that happens where she gets upset and throws a kind of ceramic glassware thing that is like what you'd use to stage a house. It's not a real mm. thing that you could drink out of. Um, it was like four different like leveled cups together that you could maybe use to put pens and flowers in but it was it kind of looked like a coffee mug glass thing do you, do you remember what i'm talking about when she picks it up and hurls it i actually don't remember that this thing is a little bit blurry in my memory maybe okay. just because it is so extravagant but continue well th- i mean it just builds into what exactly is happening because there's mm there's materials in this house that are not things that you could actually use to drink out of, to eat from as glassware. And she's picking it up and, and interacting with it. There's um, I think maybe a, a deeper level to what uh, Omadovar is trying to communicate about how we go back in time and actually personalize and make contemporary things that were written 90, 100 years ago. Um, the mm. Human Voice, originally written by Jean Cocteau, is from the 1930s. And, mm. he, you know, he's touched it before. I think it was Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown that um, he originally referenced it in, which I, I loosely remember some scenes on the phone and with the dog um, on that deck in the apartment from that film that feel very familiar mm. after watching this. But um, I, I think that he's doing something physical to, to represent how these stories, um, w- we know they're not true, but we, we have to pick them up and, and break them as if they are. Mm, yeah, yeah. And he's clearly one who likes to look back on older text and update them in whatever way he does. You know, I think about... Um, Oh gosh, what's the all about my mother, which is sort of a riff on some uh, on a Cassavetti's film at the beginning, or the referencing of Johnny Guitar in uh, uh, Women on the Verge of, of a Nervous Breakdown. Yeah, he he's clearly interested in how uh, you pick up these older texts and repurpose them and stretch them in new ways. Um, Particularly the ones he likes, not the ones he dislikes. <laughs> Correct. That would be interesting. Pick one he hates and make it better. Yeah. Sometimes I think directors should do that more. It's like that we so often see directors finding the great stuff, trying to do it again. Like, why not just like say, find the stuff that didn't work and make it work now? 
pick one of those 1938 bad universal monster movies that when they started failing and just do a remake now yeah say so we're gonna do a do-over that didn't work we're gonna try again. ari aster we got you booked mulligan yeah um so tilda the only actor in here until some firemen occur and the other butcher stand would be the the clerk when she's buying the axe but what do you think of tilda here what about the dog i think the dog was good i do too i was gonna save the dog for last since he's the best but we could talk about the dog right now yeah. he's the best dog, Adorable. dog is good yeah when everything's on player. fire i was very alarmed and i was kind of you know talking loudly where's the dog <laughs> i was worried he was in the um whatever we're gonna call that the set <laughs> that i appreciate was on fire. that but yeah to your point i think tilda holds down i like what she's doing here um you know i i can be kind of hit and miss on tilda, tilda swinton as i think we've talked about in the past you're um, definitely a fan of her daughter not so i much am maybe that supporting role in the souvenir is a turning point in uh how i connect with with tilda swinton how i respond to, to what she does uh yeah i i think she delivers um did it work for you yeah i i think she's a very interesting character always but i i think that the way that she was you know kind of playing a character that doesn't suit tilda when i talk about tilda swinton you're thinking about the ageless vampire from the jim jarmusch film or you're mm. thinking about the ageless ninja samurai zombie vampire alien from the other Jim Jarmusch film. Yeah, or yeah. You're you're thinking of her as David Bowie, or so, you're you're not thinking of someone who would ever be kind of the victim of um, or or deeply affected by someone loving or not loving her and so mm -hmm. seeing her kind of have this empathetic turn as a character who is driven to outrage and sadness out of her love for someone was very interesting and i think giving her the the room to really do a, a one-woman show was really really awesome i i can't think of something that's kind of this format where you have uh you know the colloquial one-man show where a woman's mm. just at the center of it whether it's man or woman contemporarily that feels this engrossing and personal and, and interesting that keeps me wrapped up the whole time it's it's a very interesting for me to see a digital form of the one-man show succeed and be far more engrossing than i ever would have predicted yeah and especially when it's with a second character who's just not there you know mm -hmm. to just have that conversation and have that be believable and convincing and not just that like that's the bare minimum with anything but for it to just work on any you know next level um is really kind of unique here this is a conversation that we're watching just one half of it um yes. yeah yeah i think she's uh really good it'll be interesting to see what kind of availability this this gets what kind of distribution since it is just a short but i think this uh cough is a pretty cough probably it's it, it is a really enjoyable 30 minutes um i think you know so many people just don't really do shorts and i think um this could actually find an audience in a way um with the right distribution i agree it maybe would even be suitable on prime or netflix as something that people mm -hmm. see says tilda swinton and then mm -hmm. you know for people that actually know film they're already going to know about almodovar made this movie um mm -hmm. i will say that the art design of the title card on the front and oh, the back yeah. end were just awesome i had you know bottom level expectations for a a short film that mm -hmm. was shot entirely during COVID and to to see this this level of work was just thrilling yeah yeah uh you yeah you expect it to be have this kind of tossed off feel where mm -hmm. sometimes when you see the big hitter directors doing a short you're like oh they're you know filling their time between projects like this stands on its own two feet and the the title cards are like oh oh shit like this is this is real <laughs> <laughs> um it's kind of hard to dig into this one without just talking about all the different scenes. So rather than 
you know, kind of ruin the way that he adapts the, the content. I think we should just wrap it up and talk about what our favorite scenes were and let people kind of discover all the, those moments for themselves. So what was your favorite yeah. scene, Michael? I don't know that I have a favorite scene. It's only 30 minutes. It's kind of hard to pick one. Um, I don't know. You, you go while I, while I try to think about something. I'll, I'll give you two. One I already offered when the dog shows up and definitely is not dead. Number mm -hmm. two, the moment where she admits that she's been lying the entire conversation about mm -hmm. being totally fine and going out with her girlfriend and going to the grocery store and the opera or whatever else they were doing and actually doubling down and, and saying how distraught and upset and erratic she's been. And, um, Oh, the suit. Of course the suit is fine. It was pressed at the cleaner. Just that whole um, story and how convincing and, and she, she uses her whole body while she's communicating on those AirPods. I, I loved it. How about yeah, you? Yeah, it, it is a funny short. Like there is a very clear strain of humor uh, through it. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I'm still struggling to think about something specific. Um, I'll pass. The whole thing's good. Just pass. watch it. You passed on the best scene in a Pedro Almodovar short film. You'll never live this down. Can I pick a favorite costume? Like maybe the very first one she's wearing, that gigantic red dress. That was pretty dope. I like that. Oh, yeah, where she, where you, she walks up to a chair and you're like, oh, that's hilarious. There's no way you can sit. But somehow yeah. the, the dress isn't actually stiff. Um, and she is able to sit. And I, I was honestly surprised because I thought she was going to like fall off or something yeah. funny was going to happen. Yeah, whenever I think about Pedro Olmodovar, I think about a quote or something I had heard John Waters say at one point, which is that he never finds himself bored in any movie because when in doubt, like he just picks something to look at and just focuses on that. He's like, just look at the lamps, just find the lamps and like just study those. There is always just, you know, an overabundance of things to just look at you could just ignore what is happening in an Almodovar movie and just look at stuff and be like check out those chairs I want those chairs man I love that Fun. Well, let's end on that note from John Waters run go get to the chopper we have to go I'm coming with you that was brilliant you're the best and we love you and that's another one in the can. We did it.